Welcome to the SE Podcast. I'm your host, Justin McRoberts. I met Stephen Roach a number of years ago at an event that he curates called The Breath and the Clay. It's a conference, an arts and faith conference in North Carolina. And I'd, I'd heard about The Breath and the Clay through artists who had participated in the conference as presenters and through some folks who had attended the thing. And, and all of them had something similar to say about it that it was not just different, but different in this particular way, that they left with a sense of belonging in, in the world of the arts, that less, less than leaving just equipped as an artist to make their art, or less than just feeling inspired. More than that, they left feeling like they had a place in the world of the arts. And that's such a vital aspect, uh, I would suggest, of great art, of great culture, and of life. Not just feeling equipped, um, in internally, but feeling a sense of belonging and place in my world and in my particular culture. Uh, we've become friends since then. We we chit chat off and on, and I've been looking forward to this interview for a long time. Namely, because over the last eighteen months or two years, um, since the last Breath in the Clay event, Stephen has spent a considerable amount of time investing in his own health. And his own place in his own life and his own in his own culture that he's actually spent the time to attend to who he is as he does what he does that i think is the engine behind great art lives and great careers so it is uh it, it was i was thrilled to do this conversation i enjoyed it i think you will too all kinds of early is actually the 5 a.m meeting slash uh, prayer call i had this morning it's one thing, bro. It, it's a hundred percent. It's like one thing entirely to be like, yeah, 5 a.m. I get up and I do my own thing, right? It's me, yes. a candle and yes. like something, you know, with, you know, <laughs> maybe creativity. But when it's like a, me it's like a meeting yeah. with yeah, people that's... in another time zone and they're, they've been awake for hours. Yeah. And I'm like, huh, uh, <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Judy, what Judy, what Judy said <laughs> it's Judy, right? I'm sorry, Adam. What Adam yeah. said, um, like this whole other thing. Yeah. I don't 5 a.m. meetings. I don't even think God's awake that early, bro. That's, I think, why those meetings go so poorly. The Lord's like, you're <laughs> on your own. You want to schedule that crap at five? I start at nine. I'll see you. That's hilarious. You want me to start my recorder? Yeah, hit it. All right. Mic check one, two. Justin McRoberts podcast, take 500. I think we've only really just done the two. Yeah. We've tried several times. <laughs> we've we've made several attempts to get the time set aside. That's right. Um catch me up. How are you doing? This is the the kind of you know, February is sort of the the end of the dead season. Like the yeah. first week of February is like everyone has an excuse from about you know, post Thanksgiving through most of January to get really nothing done. Yes. Uh, and mostly just outside of feeling bad for yourself. That's really the one thing everyone's allowed to accomplish <laughs> through exactly. December, January. And then this is like the the, the beginning of the ramp up season. Totally. Um, how, how are you feeling? Yeah, man, I'm actually feeling really good. I love that. I'm really excited. I have two different possible publishers that are interested in doing a book with me. Oh, my gosh. Um, I've been having conversations with people about doing some Makers and Mystics live events. We started off this year, uh, I spoke at a retreat for artists in Nashville, outside of Nashville, and that was awesome. Cool. 
So life is coming and we're right. already starting to talk about breath and clay and possibly a 2024, you know, relaunch. So, boy, that'll be a moment. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no freaking kidding. I <laughs> uh, will be there yeah. with bells yes, on. Might, might even literally just do the bells on thing just to be like, sometimes we mean it. <laughs> um, let's start there and talk about like your, I think I came into contact with you, uh, through some mutual friends who'd been to breath in the clay, um, and mostly knew the, the event and then met you as I set up trying to get there, come to find out you and I share this, um, juggling act history that we started somewhere and um the, you know both of us predominantly with music yeah and now um men in our men well into our 40s um look around and someone says what do you do like when you get past the conversation you're not like i'm not wrapped up I, we'll talk about this too i'm not wrapped up identity wise in what i do but when someone asks like okay what what do you do and and i can talk about a number of things uh, similarly, you've got, I know you as a curator, uh, I've read your books. I'm familiar with your music. You, you coach, you do, you do some retreat teaching, leading, like there's a whole, you know, list menagerie soup of things that you do. Um, talk about that process a little bit. You feel free to go as long as you want here. Talk about that process and specifically the reinvention part of it. Cause you are now in another reinvention phase. That's right. So talk about like growing in in a in a in a career that that is as broad as yours. Talk about that history and then like specifically what it means to reinvent in those seasons and into and, and to to kind of start over ish. Yeah. What's been your experience? Well, that's a great question, man. And and I think part of it just goes back as I'm scanning over my own history like what are the motivators that sparked reinvention and sometimes it's just that i get bored and my curiosity takes me somewhere else yeah sometimes it's kind of a forced reinvention out of necessity yeah you know so many different motives that can you know opportunities come up that you didn't see and you're like oh okay i had maybe i need to go this direction so yeah it's a bit of a dance you know but mm. even in my life musically you're talking about music dude my first band was total black metal death metal you know you know yeah we used to wear choir robes painted fingernails i was goth to the core you know i love I mean? it i went from there reinvented and became kind of a 60s psychedelic you know jim morrison and the doors meets tool <laughs> and everyone knows exactly what that sounds like we're all yeah, familiar with that genre <laughs> exactly and you know and i went from there and then i had a short jaunt through christian worship yeah and from there ended up in you know world music because i've i've pursued ethnomusicology yeah. and all kinds of weird instruments from all over the world most of my life so that reinvention thing felt normal to me when it came to music. Yeah. You know? But there definitely was a point when I felt the stirring 
that music was only one expression of what I had to offer, of what I wanted to give. And that's yeah. when we began to curate the breath and the clay and began to do these creative arts events and help other artists find their own ways of reinvention, you know? And yeah. So Was there a, a thread? A I mean, for sure. one way to, 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 one thing I hear when you talk about your early music journey experience is uh, some folks really do kind of chase a, a place inside a genre, right? Mm -hmm. Like the, like a folk artist or, you know, a metal artist. Um, can you was there a thread that that tied music together? I think I know this a little bit. Like it's not like you grew up in like a metal family. Like your family wasn't <laughs> you guys there wasn't metal. Not you guys were were kind of bluegrassy. Absolutely. Like, yeah, my mom was one of fifteen kids. My mom was one of fifteen kids and they were all Damn. bluegrass pickers, sharecroppers down in North Carolina, lived in a two room shack. And yeah. then my dad was a third generation fiddle player from the Appalachian Mountains. And so, you know, I tell people jokingly, I was condemned to be a musician from the start. You know, I yeah, there's, there's, from... there's something to that, though. I mean, it's like, <laughs> yeah, but what's what it seems like you fell in love with wasn't bluegrass, mm -hmm. but music. Yeah. And there's kind of a difference there. Totally. Yeah, it took me until my adult years to actually appreciate the heritage that I had from my family because I was just so rebellious and maybe it was the artist in me that just wanted to push the envelope and be, okay, well, if you're bluegrass, then that means that's what I can't be, you know, yeah. but it took me maturing as an artist and as a person to recognize there was a beautiful heritage there and that innovation and tradition weren't mutually exclusive and that there mm. was a beauty that both of them could offer my life. Innovation and tradition aren't mutually exclusive. That's magic right there. There you go. Yeah. That takes a minute to get there. Yeah, it does. <laughs> you know. Uh just by nature of uh to some degree a little bit like a <clears throat> this is actually the comedic doorway into innovation uh and tradition. Um, but also maybe like a deeper glimpse into like you and your history. Can you, do you mind telling the story about like you had a gig, <laughs> <laughs> you had this gig when you were in the metal band. Oh yes. You got yourself a gig. You were stoked about the gig and you, you wanted to provide like a little extra Oh, yeah. <laughs> for, the, for the show. You and I joked about Paul Stanley <laughs> a little bit over text right before this interview. That's right. And they did pyrotechnics and hold on. I want I, I really want my folks to hear this story about you, your metal band, and trying to like like expand the expression in the moment. Oh yeah. I mean pyrotechnics and you know, homemade pyrotechnics is the best, you know, let me <laughs> tell you. So so backstory to the backstory. I grew up in a little small tobacco town at the northern tip of North Carolina. And, you know, there was nothing there you know, at all besides tobacco. And that was about it. So the artist in me was always looking for something else. And even at 13, I was 13 years old when I did this first performance with the band that we're talking about. I played drums in this band. The name of the band was Seventh Gate. <laughs> That's so metal. We're so metal, dude. And there are obviously no metal clubs around that area, but there was a there was a little R and B hip hop kind of club called the Fresh Avenue. <laughs> oh wow! So we got a gig at the Fresh Avenue, but on the way to the gig, I stopped to get a drink at a convenience store, and I walk up to the counter to pay for my drink, 
and I noticed that there's a whole box of smoke bombs. And that's when the creative genius just woke in my life. <laughs> I'm already dying. Uh, so I buy the whole box, not just one or two. I buy the box. Of did smoke it say bombs. smoke bombs on it? Oh, it did. It said smoke <laughs> bombs. But what I didn't realize is that smoke bombs stink to high heaven. Yes. And, you know, and they smell like sulfur. It's like it's like you're walking through the sewer or something. I didn't know this. Ugh. I just was I was thinking, oh, pyrotechnics, smoke machine. You know, we're going to be rock stars. Yeah. <laughs> so I buy these. I get to the gig. And I wanted to surprise my band members. And so I you didn't, didn't even tell them. them. No, I didn't. I tell brought anybody. a little something. Yeah. And so I set up like 13 smoke bombs all around my drum kit. And it was really hilarious because I used to have these skulls that I would put around my drum set. So I would put a smoke yes. bomb in each of the eye sockets. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> That's, this is actually, to be honest with you, really well planned out. Oh. With the absence of the actual information about what it is you're working with. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, before the show, everybody's on stage tuning the guitars and getting ready. And I begin lighting these smoke bombs. <laughs> and it's like a fire hydrant of smoke shooting out of every one of these. And suddenly I realize I can't stop these things. And no. that it's it's just going. And the, yes. the more that it goes, the the more that it's like smelling this whole club. Oh gosh. And suddenly. I just hear people starting to cough. <laughs> people are running for the back exit. I can't see, but I see a little faint shape of light that looks like a door in the back where people are running out the exit, you know, and then finally the smoke lifts and I just see the lead singer of the band, like looking at me like, <laughs> what the hell are you thinking? You know, oh, this is so good. And uh, man, that was my introduction into the world of music and art and yeah. live performance and theatrics. And so, um, yeah, it could only go up from there. <laughs> True story. So I love the story for so many so many reasons. One, it's just classic. It's just so, like everything about it, it's like just sticks town. You're already like on the fringes because <clears throat> you're in a sticks town. You're in an R&B club, which is like a risk they took. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> And then you come in, uh, so it's it's funny as hell. And yet, that moment of like, I'm gonna try this thing, yes, and this might not work out. Like, you sort of theoretically and hopefully, you sort of live there. Totally. Like, like that doesn't you don't stop doing that. Absolutely, you keep doing that. And once in a while, you know, we hopefully get better. But once in a while. <laughs> It it kind of goes that way, yeah. <laughs> Where folks right. are like, "This literally stinks." Yeah, and I'm leaving. Well, I mean, dude, there's I have I have stories on this for days, and I mean, you know, I I've just I don't maybe to a fault. I've never been afraid to experiment. Yeah, I've never been afraid creatively to try stuff that sometimes is not humanly possible to put off pull off with the budget that I have to work with yeah. or with the restrictions I have. That's never stopped me. And that has led to some really beautiful moments. And it's also led to some really funny moments, you yeah. know, um, quick story. I don't think yeah, I've please. told you this and before, but, you know, I was in drama, you know, in high school and I was, um, you know, 
I, I got a couple of best acting awards. So this this dramatic thing was in me even yep. from them. But we we went to state finals and I was the main character in this play. And we were we were this is a big deal for us, a little nowhere yep. school out in the middle of and we made it to the state finals and uh, I had the lead role. Well, I never studied my script. I never looked at the lines. I was just like, I got this. I got this. I was like a gang leader. And so I had all these interactions with other characters in, in the play. Well, we got there and we're in a theater full of about 200 people, yeah. you know, watching judges, other schools. And uh, I <clears throat> improvised the entire thing. And it freaked out all of the other cast members in the play because they were like, this guy's off the rails. He's making up. That's not, that's not the line. That's not the line. Yeah. And so there's this poor little girl that was really, she had stage fright anyway. And when it came time for her to come out on the stage, she had been witnessing me do this for the past 15 minutes or so at the play. And she comes out on the stage and we lock eyes. And I just had this grin of mischievous on my face. She looked at me, she looked at the audience and she faints, like fall, falls down and faints on the stage in front of the audience. And so I had a moment of panic, but wow. I held it together and I incorporated her faint into the script. Well, thank <laughs> God you were improvising everything. <laughs> and still a drama teacher. You know, she woke up and ran off the stage crying and people did not know if that was supposed to be part of it or if it was not wow. but uh, my drama teacher was not happy with me and needless to say we did not win that year but um it was fun and if if, yeah, it is. if this girl is uh listening to this podcast i'm really sorry <laughs> he's sorry he's sorry now i'm sorry now <laughs> sorry now it seemed to have worked at the time Talk about collaboration then for a minute. That's a great little gateway into into uh, collaboration. A lot of what you do now, I mean, like you know, you start with a band. You've done some solo work, writing writing books for the most part uh, is kind of a solo effort up to a certain point. Yeah. Talk about the role of collaboration in your life. Uh, again, the, the I know you. I knew you initially through uh, your curation of the Breath and the Clay, which is a big yeah. team effort. Absolutely. Um, one of the uh, one of the I guess kind of like cliche pitfalls and critiques of the artist's life is the sort of lone wolf, yeah, thing. You're out on your own. Mm -hmm. That's not entirely untrue, but collaboration plays a, a real key, a sincerely key role in in a healthy artist's life and pattern. Yes. yes. So talk about partnership, collaboration, community in your experience. Yeah. As a mature artist. Absolutely. Well, I think that you know. First of all, the myth of individualism is, it's just that, it's a myth, and it's mm. dispelled from the beginning because, for instance, even if you are a writer, you are still collaborating with your pen or you're still collaborating with the paper. You're still mm. collaborating with your computer, your materials. If you're a painter, you're collaborating with the paint. You know, collaboration begins there. Not only that, you're also collaborating with every artist who's gone before you, who has mm. shown you a model or shown you an example of what is mm. possible. Because so, by sure nature of making what you're making in a genre, 
or in, a, in a field, you're responding, reaction, participating in yes. the like this has been going on and now you're part of it. You're yes. already collaborating by getting into the genre. Exactly. That's good. And I tell people somewhat jokingly, but also pretty seriously, I'm a bit of a recovering radical individualist. Yeah. You know, which yeah. is kind of odd because I've also been a community leader and, and part of my gifting is bringing people together. But what I mean by that is that, you know, so much of my drive to be original or my drive to make art that hasn't been done before or to set off smoke bombs in a nightclub, you know, these things were fueled by a need to be set apart. And so whereas I thought it was making me more creative, it was actually fighting against the creative process because mm. I, it was fueled in something that I had to prove to myself. It was more in, rooted in an angst of identity, if that makes sense. Mm. But what's interesting is my creative life, like even with the band that I toured with, Songs of Water, um, we were up to nine members at some times. Yeah. And other times, you know, the biggest inception of the band was six members and everybody yeah. had an opinion and everybody was a writer. And, and <clears throat> so it was always very challenging in some ways, but then also rewarding. And so yeah. now with the work, whether it's the work that I do on the podcast with makers and mystics, or whether it's the work that I'm doing in the breath and the clay community stuff or whatever it is, I value the diversity of perspective so yes. much. And I see the value of, diversity within the creative process i yeah. value working with people that i don't agree with people that i work differently with but the key to that is you have to cultivate some sense of humility in your life yeah. you know you have to cultivate a sense of um being more motivated by what you have to receive than what you yes. have to to project in some ways yeah. and that's something that i've had to learn is like okay i want to listen to this other person so collaboration for me is not only vital to my creative process but i think it's baked in to the creative process in general yeah there's a the the, the script that you flip somewhere in there is that um in that process or in the posture of humility if i make if art making for me or an arts career, a creative career, whatever, is about making things, if that's what it's about, then I I sort of default into a posture or mentality in which like I am capable and I, I either am or should be capable. Mm -hmm. And so I'm enough to make this, which is part of that artist trap where like right. then, you, then you run into walls and you're like, oh shit, I'm not enough. And now you have the spiral. Mm -hmm. But once once – I can, and if I can allow art making to be about my becoming as a person, mm -hmm. that the it's project funny. I'm working on, it's not about the project I'm working on. You and I both coach people through this. Whole, this is not about the project. This is about the person you're becoming. Exactly. And if that's the case, which I think it is, then working with other people and the humility it takes to say, I don't know how to do this, or yes. I think I know how to do this. You probably have some better, that, that, that humble posture actually puts me in a position to more comprehensively become someone which is actually the work of art yes absolutely and i think that the end result is that you end up with more 
innovative or original works than you would have fighting for that, yeah. you know? And, and so I think it impacts the art as well as your person in a positive way. And I've said it before, but, you know, for me, creativity is more about the process than the product. Yeah. And obviously when we're creating something, we, you know, there's nothing wrong with wanting a good end result. We want a yeah. good product that that's what we're making. You know, we want it to look right. But I think that whether I, fail or succeed by my own definitions of what that means, the process itself will never produce failure if I allow mm. that process to have its work in me. That's and good. so some of my biggest failures have become the biggest milestones of advancement in my life, you know, yeah. creatively and personally, yeah. you know, and of course, you know, sometimes there are things that we could avoid and there are things that would be awesome if we didn't have to learn the hard way. Yeah. But even, even those painful things that we go through, they serve to aid us in that becoming process, you know? And, and I think at the end of the day, what becomes of my person is more important than if I wrote a good book. Yeah. You know, in that context, then um, I'd love for you to talk about as someone who's got a truckload going on, um, you, it's not just, you have a lot going on as an entrepreneur. Um, there is a, the cheap way to say it is, uh, it's kind of all on you in a way. Like if you're not, if you're not moving the, if you're not moving the pieces on the board, the board, you know, the, the board stays the same and money doesn't come in. So it's not like there's a paycheck. It, it this is one of the things that is different from, <clears throat> what folks, you know, traditional or safe careers, although there's really no such thing, such things as a safe career, is there pandemic? Um, like, um, there is a, um, especially early on, a kind of uh, maybe, maybe fear that we live in that, like, if I don't do this well, I don't make money. I, I want to make a great book. I want to make a great record. I want to curate a great event. Yes, because I want to put good work in the world, but also like I really want tickets to sell. I want things because I like to pay for the thing <laughs> yes. that puts, you know, that keeps my kids up from the rain. Um, that pressure on top of like the number of things that you're working at. How does Stephen Roach stay? I don't want to say stay healthy. What are patterns of rest look like for you? Patterns of rest and work. How do you maintain that sense of of health and uh, you'll hear me say this like part of part of why i'm trying to move away from the way i used to ask the question like how do you stay healthy is because it makes it makes the default uh unhealth like how do you keep from getting unhealthy i don't want to i don't want to give into the idea that it's inevitable right like, no it's not it's actually so talk about your patterns of work and rest this is obviously on my mind because i just wrote i just wrote a book about it what's yes. that look like for you historically what's it look like now Talk about that practice in your life. Well, it's been really challenging only because when you have the opportunity to work at something you love doing, yeah, there's no distinction between work and rest or there's no distinction between work and play because yeah. many of the things that I'm doing these days, I would be doing whether I got paid for them or not because yeah. it's it's just an overflow of my curiosities. It's an overflow of the way I'm made and, yep. and et cetera, et cetera. And so that was something that my wife had to really help me fine tune. Mm. And it came in a very practical way of, she said, let me have your calendar. <laughs> and yeah. she was like, okay, Monday from eight until 12 is your podcast editing time. 
from 12 to 1.30, you're going to stop for lunch. Yeah. And at 1.30, then you can resume this. And and so she helped me to begin to curate my calendar yeah. and learn the skills of time management and That's also great. to recognize the need for rest. Yeah. And, you know, even just pulling from a, a scriptural or a spiritual uh, example, humanity begins in rest you know mm -hmm. it's like six days there's the creative process and then there's the rest which begins the first you know moment of human life or whatever so yeah. i think rest is not the end of the day but it's the beginning it, it, we have to yeah. begin with rest and that's a narrative i'm trying to flip on its head as well is that yeah. rest is not something i do because i've exhausted myself but rest is something that i begin with so that what i do will be energized in a whole different paradigm, if that makes sense. I love sense. that. I, I love the emphasis on the practical too. I mean, it's like, it is It is a little bit funny. It's like, let me have your calendar. There's a joke right. in there. And yet, <laughs> it is really, specifically with the practice of rest for folks like you and I, mm -hmm. I can't think myself into that. Like yes. I can't, I, I won't, I will not philosophically put myself in a position to actually, I can, I can maybe philosophically put myself into a, in a position where it's like, I believe it, or I think it's probably valuable, right. But actually executing yeah. on the, on the practice of rest. Yeah. I can't think myself into that. I actually have to just practically do it. It's one of those things I was listening to, um, uh, was Rick Rubin. Oh, love um, it. yeah. Um, uh, and he, he, he made a reference to, to someone else, and I don't know who it was. So I'm just gonna say it was Rick Rubin. It says it's like you know, when you make music, or you're making art, and you're thinking about your audience, your audience doesn't always know what it wants. Like you're like the the consumer, the listener, they don't always know what they want until you've made it, and then they're like, oh my gosh, that's what I want. Yes, that's so true with regards to like joy and rest and wholeness and peace. Mm -hmm. I don't, I wouldn't know what it was that I wanted and needed until I'm actually in it. Like I give myself way too much credit, especially early in life to think like, I know what rest will feel like, or I know how much I'll need. You don't know that until you're actually in it. So you have to practice yourself into those actual healthy patterns long before you, you know, can say like, this is how it's supposed to go. Exactly. And, yeah. I, and I agree with that fully. And I'll give you an example. Last night I woke up, at like one in the morning and my mind was racing. And so yeah. I found myself coming downstairs, writing, doing some things, you know, it was just going. It's like, why do all these ideas come when I'm supposed to be resting? But what I've had to learn is a very practical, uh, I just did some deep breathing. Hmm. And it's just very, you know, it's almost like when we begin to recognize it, we can be self-aware and then help ourselves, posture ourselves you know, to engage that rest because it, you're right. <laughs> I can't philosophize myself into it, yeah. but I can say, okay, I'm making a choice. What helps me wind down? Let me do some deep breathing. Let me do some things here. That's going to put me in a posture of rest. Yes. And so it's almost like I'm having to govern my own body or I'm having to govern or, or steward my own experience. And that takes a bit of internal cooperation that I get right sometimes and I don't other times. Yes. Well, part, I mean, the, you're, the theme uh, at Makers this season on uh, 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 transcendence, uh, uh, one way to talk about 
transcendence is to, is is to to recognize to acknowledge the notion that uh, of the of just the the more than there's just more and that there's more t- to me than i know and part of my art practice is uh, is a is an adventure into seeing and knowing that so uh, contextualizing my own life i can't i can't do that internally i can't contextualize my that has to come in the context of the structures that I give myself over to. So when my calendar, it's a, this is like, it's a transcendent practice. When my calendar says from eight to noon, here's your thing. That's actually a transcendent moment in which like this thing that is not me mm-hmm. is actually like has power over me. And I am, I'm contextualized by this larger something of, yeah. you know, to which I'm a part. Yeah. It's a, it's a, I love it's that. a practical transcendence, practical transcendence. That's, that's the kind of, that's the kind I'm interested in. Actually talk about when you say next book. Um, I, I, I love naming the animals. Uh, we talked about it a little bit. Um, and you, when we talked, uh, last time when we were out together, you were talking about a book that you were you're thinking about writing and you kind of been on your brain for a long time. Is this the thing you're pitching right now? Well, maybe you can help me because <laughs> I have about three different book ideas and I'm oh really? And I'm looking at which one may come to the surface the most. But I've I have been doing one because you know on Makers and Mystics we did a season on mental, emotional, and spiritual health for the artist. And then we did another season of restoration for the heart of the artist. Mm -hmm. And now that we're doing uh, art and the urge for transcendence, I'm seeing a thread between all of these things. And so over the course Mm -hmm. of these seasons, I've been basically writing a book. A lot of it comes out as the script on certain podcast episodes when I do a solo script. And so that's, what's really been moving me, especially for the arts community, uh, coming on the other side of a pandemic and and going back into you know performances and and somewhat of normative rhythms um yeah. you know i i'm really interested to unpack some of what i've gone through and some of what the other guests that i've had on the show have gone through and and so that's one of the the books that i'm i'm thinking about is just yeah. this restoration for the heart of the artist yeah um but man i've been writing a memoir uh, for the past seven or eight years yeah just about some of the crazy things that i went through in that little tobacco town uh, yeah you know and and some of the earlier experiences i don't think the smoke bomb story will be in that one so you got it here first right <laughs> uh, an exclusive as it were exclusive mcroberts only you know yeah. but um but yeah so i'm i'm kind of toggling between several books yeah on the arts and how do how do you discern like the, you're in a discernment process mm-hmm. uh with with books um you're it's and with the podcast and with makers you're you're in a perpetual discernment process yeah uh who do we invite what do we spend where do we do it in what order it's a constant decision decision making process i'd love for you to talk about arts the, your artistic professional discernment process how do you decide how how would you go decide? You can talk about the books in this way in the context if it's helpful. But how does one decide like what to do when? One of the, one of the things that you and I run into when we're coaching artists is I've got multiple ideas. I don't know which one to to get into. Yeah. What are what are the factors practices? How are how do you pay attention to like what comes next and when? Talk about your discernment process with regards to 
making work. No, that's really good. There is something that I've been paying a lot of attention to recently, and it's this Japanese practice of ikigai, if you're yeah. familiar with that. And yeah. So it's just a diagram that has this overlap between like passion and mission and profession and vocation or what the world needs, what you're good at, what you love and what you can be paid for. Yeah. And so when I'm thinking through all of these ideas, I'm thinking through all of those different angles. And so yeah. I think that's one reason why it's taken the memoir to, so long for me to finish because it's not at the center of all of those things. It's a, yeah, it's a peripheral good. thing, but I, but it's also a slow burn and and I'm not rushing it, you know, but something like the, the book on restoration for the heart of the artist, it's timely. It yep. ties into the community I'm serving. It's also something I'm personally interested in. And it's also something that I could make some amount of money from. Yeah. And so it kind of checks the boxes. So, and, and so, go, go through, go through the, the spectrum again, or the, the sort of the overlap with Ikigai. It's, yeah. it's passion. So, yeah. So you have like on the outer rim, you have like what you love, what the world needs, what you can be paid for, and then what you're good at, you know? And then when this. you get on the inner circle, you have passion, mission, vocation, and profession and how all of those things begin to work together. Yeah. Is it's it's been tremendously helpful for me. See, I, so, and again, the contextualization. This is a mm -hmm. this is again a more transcendent understanding of the artist's place in the world. That mm -hmm. it's not just. And again, you and I probably will resonate here. Even in even in the you know, uh, I'm paying a lot of attention to Rick Rubin now because I've I've been listening to his book, and so I was listening to a podcast conversation between him and Rich Roll, um, podcaster. And mm -hmm. he does the thing that um, oh, I'm gonna blank on her name. She wrote Big Magic. What's the name? Elizabeth Gilbert. Um, they they do this thing with the muse, where like you know the muse comes along and then like, oh yeah, <laughs> and I'm like and I, and I I don't I don't not vibe with that. I do I get that. Yeah, I just feel like both of those folks in their execution. And I, I, I'm going to critique Rick Rubin right now <laughs> in public. Uh, I love him. And, you know, please produce the next record. I would love that. But, um, but it's not enough. Like the inspired moment. Exactly. It's, it's not enough. Um, there are multiple factors. And if I pay, if I over attend to the muse, to the inspired moment, to the passion moment, I don't attend to the other facets of my actual like human discernment process. Mm -hmm. um, and then I make lesser, I end up making lesser art. And we, you and I both like, I've made lesser art because I've been like, I'm doing this yeah. thing because I'm in it. Right. And it like, it did, it wasn't the right time. Cause like one, it wasn't, I'm thinking really specifically for a project of mine from 2009. I was like, I'm doing the thing. And I was like, yeah. no one's going to buy that. And I didn't think about that. It didn't, I didn't matter that no one bought it, but it's yeah. super mattered. Yeah. Um, but like paying attention, like seeing myself and listening to the world, listening to my own soul is the cornerstone of art making. Mm -hmm. It's not inspiration and it's not right. talent. It's attention. Am I paying attention to myself? Am I paying attention to my world? Am I listening to the voice of the spirit? Yeah. That's the heartbeat of art making. Yeah. Not my gifts and not my talent. And the only way to be able to pay that kind of attention 
is to have altitude in your life, which is you've got to be a rested, yeah, whole, peaceful person. Yes. You have to be healthy to make good art. You have to. That's right. That's right. You know, I used to think of myself as a slave to the muse in a sense. Yeah. And if I didn't feel that sense of elation or exuberance or excitement about this thing, if I didn't feel that, I, I wouldn't engage it. Or I, you know, I was yeah. I was a bit of a slave to the muse, so to speak. But as I've matured, hopefully, in both my personal life and as an artist, I've begun to see inspiration as a discipline hmm. that I can cultivate in my life. Now, let me explain that. You know, I'm not suggesting that we can turn the switch on or off whenever we want. No, of course, inspiration hits when it hits. And that's part of the beauty of it is that we yes. don't know when it's going to come, when it's going to go. But we can posture our lives in such a way that we can be ready when it does come and that we can also work with it. I, there's a quote from Tom Waits and I, about this very thing. And he's just talking about driving down I-5 in California, I think. And and the muse hits him and he's got this idea and he speaks out to the muse in that moment and says, can't you see that I'm driving? If you want to be made, then you'll come back to me when I'm in the studio, you know? And I just, I love that playful yeah. interaction with it, you know, yeah. because you know, there are so many different factors that help us. Another thing that I draw inspiration from, no pun intended, is something that Ernest Hemingway would do in his writing. And Hemingway yeah. would never write himself dry. If mm. he was inspired by something and he knew what was going to happen in the next scene of the story, he would stop. Mm. And he would come back the next day not having written himself dry, but having written himself to the point that he didn't have to reinvent the wheel when he came back, but he That's left really something cool. there for the next day. And so there's, hmm. there is a bit of discipline that I think we can cultivate that allows us one to treat our lives as a work of art. And that's one thing that was, um, something that I've had to learn the hard way is I was creating beautiful works of art, but my personal life was a mess. Mm -hmm. And I think that's so many artists. You can, you know, look at Picasso and all these people that are creating incredible things, but they're struggling with addiction and suicide and broken relationships. And that's something that I appreciate Elizabeth Gilbert's perspective on in Big yeah. Magic is she says, I just don't buy into the tortured artist thing, mm -mm. you know, but I think that for me, maybe here's another way to say it. And I think I said said this in Naming the Animals, but spontaneity is not the result of disorganization, yes. but it's the reward of preparation. 100%. You know? And so I think that's something that we can learn as we mature as artists is, is how inspiration can work with the practical setting your calendar, you know, and how discipline, inspiration, spontaneous you know, and uh, preparedness can all work together. Love it. Well, it's, it's a, I have admired and appreciated the way, um, not just the way you um, personally and, and culturally with Makers and Mystics and Brett McClay, you curate attention and, um, and point towards health. And again, try to, you help other people um, contextualize their own lives in in the practice of art and 
as opposed to way too much creativity, uh, culture, sales culture that like wants to make me an artist or just talk to me like an artist. Part of what you do is you help you help people find themselves in the context of the arts of the tradition um, so that they we feel more part of a thing uh, than like then we feel like we are uh, like the thing. And I think that's I think that's magic. Uh, I think it's super vital. It's one of the reasons I'm such a fan of of what you you and you your team is up to, and I'm and all the more reason why like I'm really excited about your next season of life mm-hmm. personally, mm-hmm. Uh, as you've taken time over the last like year, uh, to like reorganize, rethink, restructure, reposition yourself because it's not about what you're making; it's about who you're becoming yeah. as a person in this tradition and. So I'm thrilled about uh the I'm thrilled about the next book. Uh, I'm definitely excited about that memoir that will probably come out in 2040 something uh, <laughs> ish. Right. Whenever exactly right. whenever it's ready and whenever you're ready for it. But like I, I like I like the work you make. Um and I and I really like and value the the way you go about doing it. Um and that you emphasize the practice of it uh more so than just the product so i think it's super valuable and i i appreciate it and i appreciate your time today thanks for hanging oh man dude i'm a justin mcroberts fan and thanks for having me on the podcast let's absolutely uh, good let's cause some trouble together soon and thank you for joining me for this episode of the at sea podcast if you would like to follow up with steven's authorly work the book is called naming the animals an invitation to creativity and it is available anywhere you buy books it's great i think you really dig it a lot of Stephen's work happens under the moniker Makers and Mystics. You can search makersandmystics.com. Uh, the podcast that comes from Makers and Mystics is regular. It's therapeutic. It is inspirational. Um, a huge fan. If, on the other hand, you would also like to become one of the people who is the engine behind this podcast, you can visit us at patreon.com backslash Justin McRoberts. We would love to have you on the team. Until next time. <laughs>